We'll be in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. So go ahead and find that in your Bibles. It will be projected, but it's good for you to see it in your Bibles too. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. As you're finding 1 Corinthians chapter 8, it occurred to me while I was studying this passage that a complete outsider who didn't know anything about what it meant to be the church and about Christianity might think that we were a bunch of academics, that we were just people that loved to learn, loved to read ancient books. They would come in and they would pass our book exchange library. There's books. These are a bookish people. Then they would go to Sunday school where we sit and we voluntarily go to school. Young people would be confused at this. And then we come in here and hear what might sound like a lecture about an ancient text. Are we just academic people? Do we just love reading? Do we just love learning and listening to lectures? Is that who, do y'all feel like that describes you pretty well? Well, learning is central to being a Christian. We are transformed by the renewal of our minds. The early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and we continue to do that today. It is central. The passage we're going to look at this morning, though, brings out a specific point. It's a very particular, specific point, and it has two parts. As great as knowledge is, as great as knowledge about the Bible and theology is, knowledge without love is dangerous to a Christian, and a knowledgeable but unloving Christian is dangerous to the church. That's what we're going to see in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Knowledge without love is dangerous to a Christian. And a knowledgeable but unloving Christian is dangerous to a church. Now before we read this chapter, we're going to cover the entire chapter this morning. I need to do a little bit of preparation. I don't mean I need to prepare my sermon. I've done that already. I need to prepare you for it. It's a chapter about food offered to idols. I guarantee this is not an issue that any of you have faced. Food offered to idols. As I was reading and preparing, I read somebody's sermon on this, and he started off saying, I know what you're all thinking. Another sermon on idol meat. Idol meat, idol meat, idol meat. That's all I ever hear about. Any church I go to, I turn on Christian radio, all they talk about is idol meat. I know that's not the case. You probably never even thought about it. But I promise that this passage is pertinent to us today, even though we don't deal with decisions about idol meat. Let me explain why food offered to idols was an issue for the Corinthian Christians, and then we'll read the chapter together. So Corinth, as we've talked about, was an extremely pagan city, full of idolatry and idol temples. And part of this idol worship involved sacrificing animals. And so people would bring the very best of their animals to be butchered up and sacrificed to these idols. So it would be the the best meat would be the meat that would be processed through the idolatrous pagan temples. And then this meat wouldn't just be thrown away when they were done. Either the idolaters would hold a big banquet after their idolatrous worship, and they would serve this meat that had been used in idol worship— And it was a huge part of the social fabric of Corinth was to go to these banquets, these parties. Or, I guess at the back side of the temple, I'm not sure how they did it, this this meat would get processed through their worship, 
and it would be sold in basically a market, like a meat market. And if you wanted a really good steak for your family get-together, the best place to get it would be at the temple. And you could go and get the best meat around that had been used in idol worship. And so these Corinthians were getting saved, and they were becoming Christians. They were believing in Jesus Christ. They were, their sins, all their idolatry that they'd grown up in was being forgiven. They were being freed from having been enslaved to these idols. And they started to see this whole idolatry system in a different light. And they started to see it as wicked and awful and sinful and defiling and unclean. And they were wondering, should we even still go to these parties? Should we even still get our meat from these markets? Is it okay to even eat these things? And there, were a di- there was a difference in thought. Some Christians thought it was fine. Other Christians thought that it, it defiled you and it was sin and it was wrong. And so there was another division in the Corinthian church over this issue of could you eat food sacrificed to idols? And that's where we enter our text. Let's read it to get the full flow of thought, and then we'll go through and see how knowledge without love is dangerous to a Christian and how knowledgeable but unloving Christians are dangerous to a church. Now, concerning food offered to idols... We know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. And that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience. When it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, If food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Paul is looking at this church divided in so many ways, including over this issue of this cultural practice of eating food that had been sacrificed to idols. And once again, just like he did with marriage, he encourages them to look deeper. He says, not just about this food. It's about the way you're approaching knowledge 
in the way you're approaching your relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And his first point that I want to highlight is, as I shared before, knowledge without love is dangerous to a Christian. Let's look back at the first three verses. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. In my translation, that's in quotes because he's quoting most likely from the letter that he received from them on this topic. And he's agreeing, all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up. Literally, it inflates. But love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Now, he's not referring to all knowledge. He's not saying knowledge is bad. You shouldn't know stuff. He's saying this kind of knowledge, this knowledge that you guys are so proud of, this knowledge is inflating knowledge in place of constructive love. That word puffs up is just what you would think. It's the idea of inflating by by blowing air into. This knowledge is puffing you up. Whereas love, if you, had, if you would choose love, it would build up. That's the word used for construction, building houses. You can think about the difference, picturing like a, a blow-up inflatable house you might see at a child's birthday party. And you know, we've had them here for fall festivals. You know, in two seconds flat, you, you, you turn on the, the generator or whatever it is, the air compressor, and it blows up and it's a house. But it's empty and hollow. Now, contrast that instead with an actual house, a building made with wood and brick and construction methods and concrete. The difference between those two is the difference Paul is highlighting. Yes, you know some things, but that knowledge has just inflated you. Because you know things without love, you're not being built up. There's no substance to you. There's no reality to to you. You're hollow, empty, inflatable. Now, I'll tell you where I've seen this the most. In Bible college and seminary. Young Bible college guys, young seminary guys in particular, are so inflated with what they know. They are so inflated with what they know. They're so certain about everything they know. I heard a story once of a young seminary student who read a book by a professor at a different seminary. In this book, he just disagreed with everything this book said about how the church ought to be run and practices. And he took notes on that book, everything he disagreed with, and he was so certain in his framework about the church. And he heard that this professor was going to be visiting his school to give a lecture, and then there was going to be a reception afterwards, and you could meet this professor. And there would be a Q&A time. And so he prepared, and he got all his notes on all his arguments, why this guy was wrong, why his system was right. And he marched in, and he went there, he got there early so he could sit right up front with his notes, and he could get this professor, teach him a thing or two. And so the time came for the reception, and he was right there, he was all set, ready to go, locked and loaded. And the gentleman came out and said, I'm so sorry. The professor came out and apologized profusely. He said, I'm just really sorry. I'm not going to be able to stay for the reception. I've got to get back to Africa. The people there are poor. The children are starving. They have no clothes. They have no resources. They're very sick. 
and I'm going to go and I'm going to minister to them and serve them. If there's any of you here who have the love of Jesus in your hearts, we need help. Would anyone come with me? And this young seminary student, so puffed up with his knowledge, in a second was popped, deflated. He looked at his notes and felt like they were so stupid, so dumb, wadded them up, threw them away. I don't know if he went with the professor or not. But that's the idea. We can just get so full of ourselves when we know stuff. But if there's no love there, there's no substance there. And it's really dangerous to us. How can we know if we are puffed up with knowledge? Well, there's two symptoms that he gives us in this passage. The first symptom, so we can do a little self-examination. The first symptom of being puffed up with knowledge is you think you know stuff. The first symptom of being puffed up with knowledge is you think that you know stuff. Look at verse 2. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. If anybody imagines, if they think they know something, that just proves that they don't yet know as they ought to know. And we study Proverbs at the beginning of the year, and one of the keys to wisdom is realizing that you don't realize everything, is knowing that you don't know everything. A wise person is the person who is open to the fact that he needs to learn. A fool, the very definition of a fool, is someone who will not learn who is so certain that they're right and knows it all. So the first symptom is thinking that you know stuff. The second symptom, you don't love God. The second symptom is you don't love God. Verse 3, but, so this is the contrast, but if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So the puffed up person with all their knowledge doesn't love God. You know, the great commandment, number one commandment, everything hinges on it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Yes, the mind is involved, but the commandment isn't know a lot about God. It's love God. Loving God will include knowing about God and knowing God, but it's no substitute for loving God. We can make an idol out of knowledge. And the danger is, in so doing, we'll miss out on a relationship with God. We'll have tons of knowledge and we'll be all puffed up with it, but we won't have a relationship with God. Isn't it interesting there in verse 3, this is the contrast. Instead of being puffed up with knowledge, this is what you should be like. And it's loving God and being known by God. You would have thought that he would have said loving God and knowing God. But he says being known by God. And biblically, that's a reference to relationship. It's having an intimate relationship with God wherein you don't just know stuff about him, but he knows you. Think about your favorite celebrity. Who's your favorite celebrity? Could be an actor, an author, a singer, a musician. Think about the difference between you knowing a ton about this person, a ton of trivia about them, and that person knowing you. There's a huge difference there between knowing a lot about some figure and that figure having you and their cell phone contacts, knowing where you live, knowing what kind of food you like because they like you and love you and want to hang out with you. See, in Christianity, you're not just enrolled 
in sort of a spiritual academy where you are to learn a lot of things. You're brought into a relationship with God wherein he actually knows you. And it's wonderful and glorious. But if we accept knowledge without love, we run the danger of missing out on all that. So knowledge without love is dangerous to a Christian. And then the second part of the point, a knowledgeable but unloving Christian is dangerous to a church. You know, they really did know some things. They knew that idols aren't real and God is real. In verse 4, Therefore, as to, eating of, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. That's true. Paul affirms that. There are many so-called gods, fake gods, but only one true God, only one true Lord. Verses 5 and 6 For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. This is good knowledge. This is good theology. There's a sense in which they did know some good, true things. But they missed something. And that's what he covers in verse 7. However, not all possess this knowledge. But some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So you guys, you Corinthians, you know a lot of good stuff, but you have forgotten your brothers and sisters in Christ. They're not all there yet. They They haven't all learned as much as you've learned. And for some of them, if they eat food that's been offered to an idol, in their mind and in their conscience, it really has been offered to an idol, and they really are participating in idolatry. The conscience is introduced here in verse 7. That's not something that you read a ton about in the Scripture, but it's a concept that we're pretty much all familiar with. It's that God-given, innate part of every human being, even non-Christians, that operates as sort of a compass, a moral compass, that helps us get oriented as to what's right and what's wrong. Now, our consciences have been compromised because of the fall and because of sin. And our consciences are informed by how we grow up and the teaching we receive. So not everybody's conscience says the same thing to them all the time. I think generally they're oriented roughly the same, but in specifics, Because we're so messed up by sin, our consciences aren't always in exact agreement with each other. I'll give you an example of how our consciences are shaped by our influences. I grew up in a heavily sarcastic atmosphere. Sarcasm was our love language, especially in the men in our family. Sarcasm is how you get laughs at a family get-together. Sarcasm is how you look smart and clever. But then, expanding out of the Broadway household a little bit, meeting more people, I realized that not everybody enjoys sarcasm as much as the Broadway men do. And for some people, sarcasm hurts. It hurts people's feelings. So I grew up, my conscience was great with sarcasm. It's not only not a bad thing, it's a great thing. But I realized that other people's consciences weren't like that. 
Have you ever seen somebody that didn't grow up in sarcasm try on sarcasm as a sense of humor and how ill-fitting it is? You can almost see they're ashamed of themselves right after they say it. Now, this is one of those gray areas, and this is a gray area kind of issue that Paul's dealing with. Our consciences are in regular need of updating. We need to let God's Word shape our consciences. And this is what Paul, I believe, wants for these weaker Christians. But the fact of the matter is they're not there yet. This is the important thing about gray area issues. It's not idle meat for us. It might have to do with drinking alcohol. I'll bet some of you feel that it's perfectly acceptable for a Christian to have a glass of wine with dinner. And that it's not alcohol that's a sin, it's drunkenness that's a sin. I'll bet others of you feel that any alcohol is a sin because any alcohol is a step toward drunkenness and worldliness that's unnecessary and not glorifying to God. I'll bet both of those opinions exist within our church. The fact of the matter is, scripturally, it's a gray area, and I think that a faithful Christian can land in either spot, genuinely trying to honor and glorify God. There's gray area issues in regard to uh, how we let our teens date. Uh, There's gray area issues involved with fashion, how we dress, entertainment selections, how we deal with screen time with our children, educational choices, homeschool, Christian school, public school. We've got to navigate all these things in a pagan society together, and we're not always going to land in the same place. But here's the interesting thing. If you go against your conscience, even if it's not literally sin according to God's word, If you go against your conscience, if you do what you believe to be sin, even if it's not, it is sin. Even if it's not sin, it is sin if you do it thinking that it is sin. So even, let's go back to sarcasm. So let's say sarcasm is not a sin. Let's just say that. Maybe it is, maybe it isn't. That's a whole different topic. Let's just say sarcasm is not a sin. But I'm one of these that grew, let's just pretend I'm one of these that grew up in a household where you didn't talk like that to people. And I think it is a sin, but I get in with friends that that's how they joke. And because of that sort of peer pressure environment, even though I think it's wrong, he's a Christian, he speaks like that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it. Well, for me, I just sin because I'm doing what the peer group wants me to do more than what I believe God wants me to do. Even though it's not a sin on paper, it's a sin in my heart because I'm going against what I believe the Lord wants. Is that, it's a complicated thing for me to try to explain. I hope that makes sense. I'll give you another example. I had a close friend that I grew up with. He was the pastor's son. And his family felt that it was wrong to eat out on Sundays, after church or at all, on Sundays because Sunday's the Sabbath. And if you go and eat out, you're not working, but you're causing those people to work on the Sabbath. Your waitress, the manager of the restaurant, the busboy. And you're contributing to a sinful system if you eat out on Sundays. Now, I didn't have that particular conviction, although I think there could be merit to it. I didn't have that particular conviction. So sometimes uh, when we were all of age that we could drive, we would go, go out to eat. What I didn't think about, and I would have if I had known this passage, is by me saying, let's all go out to eat. Hey, Jonathan, you want to come with us? Oh, no, that's right. You've got your thing about not eating out on the Sabbath. What I didn't think about is I was tempting him to go against his conscience. 
I wasn't having a thoughtful discussion with them. Jonathan, I love you. I, I kind of think that maybe it's not a sin, and I want you to be able to join us, but I understand you're convicted about it. Maybe we can talk about it. It was just giving him a hard time because he was going to miss out. And so we'd all go off, and he'd be left to himself. You see how unloving that is. Now, let's just say it genuinely is not a sin to go eat out on Sundays, and I, that I was right theologically. Was I right in terms of fellowship? Was I right in ter- terms of love for my brother in Christ? To just disregard what his conscience is telling him? No. Paul is telling them it's not about the idol meat. It's not about eating out on Sundays. It's not about sarcasm. It's not about alcohol. It's about your disposition to your brothers and sisters in Christ. You're not thinking about them. You're not loving them. It's about the effect that you are having on them. Look at verse 8. Food will not commend us to God. It's not about the food. We're no worse off if we do not eat. If if we do not eat, we're no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? Don't you think you're tempting them against their conscience? Don't you think you're causing them trouble? See, the danger for the church, if it becomes full of knowledgeable but unloving Christians, is that those knowledgeable but unloving Christians can, according to the language of this scripture, destroy their weaker brothers and sisters in Christ. Verse 11 and 12, And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. It is so difficult to navigate this pagan world in light of our Christian faith. And we're all at different levels of maturity as we grow. We've got to look out for each other. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Idle meat may not even be a big deal. Sarcasm, these examples I've come up with, they're not a big deal in of themselves. What is a big deal is the effect that we have on each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. When's the last time you really and truly thought empathetically about your brothers and sisters in Christ? Maybe somebody you disagree with in our church or in the church at large. When's the last time you remembered Jesus Christ died for that individual? That's my brother. That's my sister. In our inflated state, we can sin against each other and wound each other's conscience and thus sin against Christ himself. And so Paul's bottom line in verse 13, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat. I will never eat out on Sundays again, so long as I know it causes my brother Jonathan to stumble. I will never use sarcasm again, so long as I know it causes my sister to stumble. I will never drink alcohol again, so long as I know that it causes my brother and my sister to stumble. Because way more important than my rights and my freedoms is loving and serving my brothers and sisters in Christ. Knowledge without love is dangerous to a Christian. A knowledgeable but unloving Christian is dangerous to a church. And the vision Paul has in his mind here of the church is a people so devoted 
to each other, that they'll willingly forego their rights and privileges and freedoms in Christ if it means protecting each other and caring for each other. And uninflated people genuinely building each other up in love. And so in response to this passage, I suggest that we resolve to measure our heads and our hearts and make sure that they're in proportion. We don't want a bunch of big-headed, small-hearted people. And to learn as much as we can, because learning and knowledge and theological growth is good, learn as much as we can, but never let our learning outpace our loving. Never let our learning outpace our loving. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It addresses subjects that I would never think to address from the pulpit. But it's so profitable for us. And your insight and your wisdom is unmatched because you created us and you know everything. So thank you for giving us this fresh bread this morning. And I pray that we would be nourished by it, sustained by it spiritually. That you would help us to be a knowledgeable but loving people. In Jesus' name, amen.